They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. And we are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today, we welcome our friend and colleague, John Longworth, pastor at Good Shepherd in Rutland, Vermont. And he's also a fellow conference dean, along with me, of the Vermont New York Conference, which is uh, 12 ministries. Three of them happen to be in upstate New York. Welcome, John. Glad to have you here today. Hey, thanks for asking me. And a fun fact about John's congregation is it's the congregation that I grew up in. John was not my pastor, as we are the same age, but um, but yeah, he is uh, serving, and that's where I grew up, and so I have many fond memories of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, and was back way back in the day before the sanctuary was built when in, in the early 90s, so a lot, a lot of great memories and faith formation for me in that place. So that means that, uh, John, your next call is going to be in suburban Chicago. Sorry. <laughs> is that how that works? Yeah. Hey, yeah. I, I'm, I'm good with pretty much anything as long as there's uh, an opportunity to uh, let one of my colleagues' moms know what they're up to. Uh, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you know this, but uh, when I was down at uh, Trinity in Worcester, Massachusetts, I actually was the pastor to the parents of uh, Don Johnson, D-Guy from Calumet. And so occasionally when I would need to get in touch with Don, I would threaten to tell his mom. Uh, and that's how I would get, get him to uh, call me back. Nice, nice. <laughs> the church is small, my friends. The church is small. It's very funny. Well, John, welcome to the show. What we would like to talk to you uh, today about is uh, some of your Franciscan connections, that spirituality and what that means for your um, faith and leadership. And also um, Good Shepherd is involved in a uh, wonderful uh, food ministry in the wider community, and we'd like to talk about that. All right, great. You know, it, it's really interesting. They, uh, I think I'll start with the food, the food ministry. Yeah, great. I did not come to Rutland with a particular project or a ministry in mind. The things that really called me to Rutland was the community, the people that I had a chance to meet. I was very impressed with the uh, preschool and the after-school program that they had running here. And it was really after spending some time looking at what they were already doing uh, at the time of my arrival uh, that I started getting ideas for how we might simplify on the one hand. I think at this point, most churches probably are at the point where they can do maybe one or two things really well, and that pretty much everything else they do is either expressed as uh, the personal ministry of one of their members or partners and agencies that they volunteer with. So, you know, unless you've got a really large church, doing a ton of different projects is quite complicated. So I took a look at the landscape and I realized that every single day of the week, Monday to Friday, uh, this church was already feeding 50 preschool children providing snacks for 20 grade school children. They were taking up weekly offerings of food that was going to the community cupboard. There was a team of volunteers that worked at our local Dismas house, which is a transitional home for people coming out of prison and trying to reintegrate into society. And so they were cooking the meals uh, once a month at that house. And so I looked at that kind of arrangement of activities and said, you know, there's there's already something of a, of a food project or a food program going on here. And so really all I did was try to encourage them to 
to build and develop on that. Uh, and so I knew that one way that we could get an initial sort of big win uh, was that we partnered with uh, Outreach Incorporated and End Hunger New England, and we packaged up, well, our original goal was to package up 10,000 meals. And I, I kind of put that goal out to the council uh, within a couple months of arriving mm -hmm. after I'd kind of looked at the landscape. And, you know, we were able to do over 13,000 that first go around. Wow. So, you know, it was a very strong response from the congregation. What I never expected was how strongly the community itself would respond. Uh, so that was 2013 when we did the first event, packaging up 13,000 meals and giving them away to the local food cupboards. Since 2013 until this uh, winter, we've done 125,000 meals. We've probably seen 900 different volunteers come through <laughs> and contribute in some fashion to that project and seen fundraising come from this amazing network of, you know, 10, 15 different churches. On some level, I kind of operate with this crazy idea that whatever we're doing in the community, we should never be by who's in the pews on Sunday morning or what we think we have. Uh, if we sort of imagine right from the get-go that every church building, every church community, every potential volunteer, every resource, every last thing belongs to God, then that means it's sort of all at our disposal if we're just willing to ask. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so that's led to us you know, being able to have what for some people feels like maybe an outside, an oversized impact given the, uh, the size of the congregation. You know, our average weekly worship attendance is something like 65 people. And so um, if we have, say, for example, 300 volunteers coming in for our major food event, that means that we absolutely need a lot more than the folks that just come, you know, on an average weekly basis. Since we did that project and since we've built that up and kind of run with that, that has inspired us to think uh, more holistically. And so some of that has been partnerships linked with the packaging of food. Not only do our meals go to the Vermont Food Bank and 14 different pantries, uh, but we've also begun to do some really innovative partnerships. For example, there's uh, a place called the Vermont Farmers Food Center here in Rutland, and some very innovative and creative farmers are trying to find ways that small farmers can create a market to really be able to sustain themselves as a business. Yeah. Uh, and so they're helping people with everything from community-supported agriculture programs to having a really thriving farmer's market that runs all year long. Every single week, we're able to shop uh, from farmers that are locally growing and locally producing food. I just think that's absolutely amazing. That's um, wonderful. And so one of the things that's really a challenge is that, you know, I'm blessed to have access to these things because you know, I've made certain choices about the way our food budget's gonna look. Other families don't always have those options. Food resources are limited, money is limited. Uh, and so one of the things that Farmers Food Center is doing is trying to come up with innovative ways to get people access to fresh local food. Uh, this past year, they piloted a project where local physicians wrote prescriptions for fruits and vegetables, really, uh, which would then allowed for a whole new set of resources. Rather than just relying on the emergency food resources, this meant that uh, health insurance was helping to pay for this food. 
and the customers uh, went to the went to the farmers market every week for the entire I think it was whatever it was like twenty something week growing season, and were able to pick up a huge grocery bag filled with fresh vegetables. Not only did we have some volunteers from Good Shepherd go over and help with uh, creating those bags, but we were able to give away uh, some of the meals that we had packaged as part of that. And what was exciting about that is that we were starting to show how emergency food overlaps with fresh local food and how you can use some of the things that are more focused like staples, uh, rice, uh, pasta, and how you can combine that with the fresh food that they were producing, put out some recipes, put out some um, uh, basic instructions. And it was really kind of neat because we got to see how uh, even an emergency food project can, with the right partners, become a nutrition education project, can become uh, a way to really support our own local economy and our own local growers. So I was very excited to kind of see that that play out. And so this year, knowing that they had been renewed uh, in their funding for another year, uh, we explicitly packaged dry food that would be companion food for um, the next round of these healthcare shares. That's really awesome. That wow. is awesome. So were people gung-ho about this right away or did you have some pushback like we should be doing something for our church or, or uh, you know why are we doing this out here did you have any of those kinds of conversations or were people on board I, right away i think that people were on board with helping the community right away i think the scale of it terrified them yes yeah, sure. um <laughs> you know the sizes and the numbers we were talking about right out of the gate seemed to be overwhelming and um one of the things that's been great is that each step along the way, while it's taken a little bit more work, a little bit more coordination, a little bit longer range planning, every win has helped to convince the congregation that that they really are capable. Um, and one of the things that we've also tried to do is have a lot of permission giving around letting things go that don't seem to serve either the church or the community anymore. And so when there's been classes or other random oddball collections of various kinds that have been done in the past that people are really struggling to see how it helps them connect with their neighbors or how it helps them connect with other people that are doing good in the community. To give some permission to let those things go, to let some of the meetings and some of the other activities go, and really try to focus our, our energy and our effort. I'm going to be doing a workshop at the Senate Assembly this year, and one of the things we want to talk about is how trying to cultivate a mission that that really is focused that one of the things that happens with that is that there's definitely some letting go um but the upside is that there's this real energy that is created when you know what you're doing yeah, <laughs> and right. you know what you know why you're doing it and and what i've been amazed with is the number of people who have you know seemingly uh, showed up out of the blue who now that we have this sort of identity in the community uh, people are coming to us who are ready to rock and roll right from the right from the very beginning, and they feel like there's ways for them to plug in. Um, one of our key project coordinators on the annual um, food project just went down to Florida. I don't they haven't quite moved there yet, but they're sort of snow doing the snowbird thing, and so she needed to let her her leadership role go. And I was amazed because sitting around the table for the first planning meeting for 2017. Uh, was all people who had recently joined the church um, nice. who were really excited about using that as a vehicle to plug in and get more involved. Yeah, so they so, only know the community through those terms. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a certain sense, like that's that's their that's that's how they've grasped the identity of who we are. Yeah. Right. Um, cool. So, what are some of those things that you had to let go of? I, I guess not so much what were they, but the process. Did you have a, a number of people give you pushback and some of those things? I know that there are certain individuals in each congregation that have projects that they like to work on that they're really tied into, and then to say, well, this really doesn't fit in to our current mission of who we are today, we're going to have to step back from this. I mean, how did how, what did that look like, and how did that feel, and, and were people really understanding of that, or did you receive a lot of, lot, lot of blowback because of that? So some of it was permission-giving, uh, more like the question would come up with, you know, there's no one to do this uh, coat drive. What should we do? <laughs> right. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, well, it sounds to me like there's no one to do it. That's what you seem to be saying. Is that, is that sort of where everybody feels, how, where everybody's at? You know, and that really allowed some things to just kind of drift away fairly organically. In other cases, there were projects that people still kind of thought of as pet projects, but they, they were, so they sort of belonged to one of the small church communities. Uh, for example, our uh, women of the ELCA, the Welka Luncheon, um, they do a collection for the women's shelter every year, once a year, uh, for their Christmas party. Uh, and they decided this a number of years ago that um, doing a Yankee swap or giving each other presents was sort of ridiculous. Um, they'd rather give presents to people that really needed them and that that would be their Christmas party. And quite frankly, the energy was there to keep doing that. And it was contained within that it was contained within that uh, small community. So, you know, they said, should we keep doing this? Absolutely. Why not? Um, so it, there's been some give and take, you know. Uh, yeah, sure. Some of it's been help, uh, giving people permission to let go of things that they probably already wanted to let go of. Some of it's been uh, giving a thumbs up to small groups within the church that want to keep sort of one signature activity going. And then some of it has been some just ongoing conversation about how do we use this sense of call in terms of who we are as a community, who we are as a congregation to, um, to become almost like a measuring stick, you know, because there are an infinite number of activities you could do as a church. Um, there are even some activities that people would pay you to do and they don't necessarily mean that those are the things that God wants us to do. You know, someone will pay you to do a underwater basket weaving for Jesus class. That doesn't necessarily mean that <laughs> it's time to start digging a swimming pool. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, helping really to keep people constantly talking about discernment has been another way. I think that um, we've been able to make a lot of steps forward without uh, without at least a lot of pain in terms of the, the ministry and activities of the church. And have you... Um... I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but you've kind of integrated this whole food theme into the program part of the church too, right? Through like preaching and teaching and how you form people in faith and, and those kinds of things as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, what's really beautiful is that, um, the, it provides, it provides uh, a ready-made discipleship opportunity. Um, I'm the last person who wants to tell anyone that if they, if they've already got, um, a discipleship practice out in the community where they're really on fire for say like the local health clinic and that's where they that's where they're putting their time and their effort and they're doing that out of a motivation to serve God and serve their neighbors I say go for it on the other hand there's some folks that are really wrestling with well 
I like coming to worship. I, I'm appreciating what I'm hearing. I'm feeling comforted. I'm feeling welcome. But what do I do with that? And and so what's nice about it is that it's given us a place for, well, here's a way you could plug in. Here's a way that you could um, serve. Uh, it was really exciting because uh, just a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was only last week and it's just been a busy week. I can't remember which. Uh, but we had two young people that were confirmed. And one of the questions I asked them is about where they were going to practice their discipleship in the coming year. And I was really excited because the... Um, both of them said that they wanted to uh, be involved with the uh, garden boxes that we have here on our property. And uh, those garden boxes are just a couple of many around New England that I know a lot of churches have set up um, to help make food production part of what they do on their property. Right. And um, in terms of our own usage, our food production goes three places. It's a, a raw material for our kitchen to help feed our children. It's vegetables that are donated to our community cupboard, which is our local food shelf uh, when things are in season. And sometimes it just goes home with individual students who really need the help. Uh, and so I'm really excited to see that this little patch of dirt, which is connected to our own inside ministry, our families, and our community, is something that our young people felt was compelling that they really wanted to play a, play a part in. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, there's... It's serving exactly the function I hoped it would, which is that here's a ready-made discipleship opportunity that you can um, that you can take part in, and something that's on point with with what our our sense of who we are is. What I love about this is um, not to use a, a gardening pun, but it's so organic. I mean, it's the whole you're not like using a canned curriculum to say, okay, I'm gonna together a food ministry and what's that look like and what are the steps I need to follow. <laughs> it's, right, It's right. happening relationally and it's happening kind of on the fly almost, right? I mean, it's just kind of developing as you as you continue to participate. I, I, would, I would say that's very much been the case. And what's been really neat is to see part of it has been helping to see people who were already involved in one of the activities that uh, uh, predated my arrival that what they're doing is part of this call from God. And that's just been exciting to watch them kind of light up and go, oh yeah, that's part of this too. A second thing that's been really exciting is that uh, um, people have come with additional ideas. Um, and so in, in, my, in my thinking, with, if the Holy Spirit is raising up new ideas and ministry activities um, uh, in the hearts and minds of the people who are in the pews, then, then that's a really good sign that what we're doing is God-driven and not either driven by a book that said, do it this way, or, or even driven by my own ideas, but rather that we're all kind of uh, cooperating and creating this thing together. I love that. It's awesome. I do too, especially with the, the younger folks when you said they want to plug into some of these programs. I think having the, the different ways that people can participate is, is really critical in, in the success of that. You, you have your hands-on ministry. Uh, you, you probably have some sort of opportunity for people to give financially to support some of these programs, folks to, to pray for the programs and, and to maybe if they don't want to get their hands dirty as far as the, the, the boxes that you have for growing produce, you can package meals or you can serve at the Dismiss House. I mean, there's so many different ways that people can participate. It's not just you need to come and, and, and do it this way in the singular way to be involved in this ministry? Well, there seems to be no um, distance between the theory and practice. They're kind of right. both 
developed together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A part. I mean, part of what really kind of inspired us was um, when we were packaging the even the first year out. Uh, there was not enough room in the fellowship hall where the volunteer work was taking place to actually stage the finished food. So we had one other big empty room that wasn't being used that morning, uh, the sanctuary. (laughs) So we just started stacking boxes of food Mm. in the sanctuary. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, we had this kind of one of those, and I think this is one of those uh, tie-ins to what I would say is sort of Franciscan spirituality. We had one of those moments where the concrete reality of the world taught us something about God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we had this huge stack of boxes in front of the altar and I'm standing there with a couple of church volunteers during the cleanup phase. And I, and I just happened to look over to someone and said, isn't that funny? Usually we come into this room so that we can eat. And today we came into this room to help feed others. Yeah. Nice. You know, and, and, <laughs> and it was really like, like it was that image and that juxtaposition uh, of this idea of the church as a place that feeds people spiritually. And when that's really happening, that's God doing the work, not any one of us. And, uh, and that it could potentially be a place where we also um, look at taking care of people's basic needs uh, as a form of, you know, responding to what God has done for us. That's not something that you were planning on, right? <laughs> it just so, so happened to be uh, a place where you needed to store the food. And then all of a sudden the, the Holy Spirit was at work and said, you know what? There's something bigger here that we're doing that, you know, and that and God is definitely involved in that and leading that and uh, bringing people towards that. That's that's awesome. If I'm not mistaken, isn't your mission statement kind of around all of this stuff as well? Did did you guys redevelop that? We we did. We did. We uh, we actually it, it started out as a question. It kind of posed a question to the council and said, you know, do you think that we could would it be fair if we describe ourselves as being people who are fed by God to feed our neighbors. And you know what? Everyone really liked that. <laughs> and what's really great about it is that it's, it's, you can remember it. Yep. You can put it on a bumper sticker. Yep. Uh, you don't even need to have a bumper sticker. You can still remember it. And it preaches, which yeah. you know, to me is, is very important. I would, I would challenge um, you know, uh, any uh, pastor or ministry leader who's maybe listening to this podcast Go find your mission statement, the last one that was probably developed by a uh, uh, retired corporate business development type person. And I, I dare you to preach out of that mission from the pulpit next Sunday and see if there's anything of, of great value that you can actually say. I think that a lot of times what happens with mission statements is that you end up with this uh, mental clutter. Right. And if you start to really attack the mental clutter with a lens of, what what is this if we strip away every churchy word and say this in the simplest plainest gentlest fashion possible what does this paragraph say and i guarantee you that a large number of them say the following we go to church we think it's nice we wish you would too hmm. it is, but it is nice <laughs> <laughs> oh it is nice um the only problem is that when you get it down to that level you realize that there's nothing there's if, no so what yeah yeah the mission if mission missio right missio is is all about being sent out being sent to being uh, uh directed to somebody someone somewhere in your neighborhood in your city in your town then we like being in church and we wish you would show up is not a mission and so and so i think that sometimes um maybe congregations struggle as far as that goes because they're trying to live out something that doesn't really send them anywhere. 
The other thing that's been interesting is, and, and this has been an ongoing project in terms of finding, stat, stat, once you start getting into questions of staffing, it always gets to be a bit tricky. <laughs> but one of our, our long-range goals is to try to find the right staff person who can, first of all, take on responsibility for the school lunch program for our children, uh, but then in the long run, kind of serve as a hub person who can manage the, the way in which our own church kitchen uh, is used and is linked to all these different things that we've been talking about. We've also spoken, you know, sort of in a dreaming way about some, I mean, really crazy off the wall ideas like a food truck or uh, a mobile farmer's market for families or or even something in terms of in-house, uh, a weeknight, I always think it's funny, so we call it weeknight Sunday school, right? Because we can't get away from the Sunday school language, but a weeknight gathering that includes both Christian ed and a hot meal and thinking about how that might serve our families as well. Yes. And so that, you know, that's, that remains a work in progress in terms of finding the exact right person to fulfill that capacity. Um, but I'm confident that b- because of the strong sense of purpose this has given folks, that I, I think that it will come to pass. Wouldn't it be great to have every church to kind of just think in that way of saying, hey, we have the pastor. How does the other staffing revolve around our mission? Not necessarily just to go out and hire uh, you know, an administrator or a youth youth person or a Sunday school person, which is, you know, good and necessary for many congregations, but to say, what is our mission? What is our why? And how can we not only live that out, but also be creative with the staffing at our congr- at our church so that we can better fulfill our mission? It's good stuff, John. It really is uh, inspiring. Well, thank you. How about your own faith in the midst of, of this? How, does, how have you been um, shaped by it in kind of some new ways? Well, it's really funny. So I'll tell you a, just a real quick story. I was originally going to depart from Worcester, Massachusetts to go to Philadelphia. <laughs> so, <laughs> Took so, a wrong so turn? I, yeah, I got lost at Albuquerque or something like that. Um, That's good like that, I've, I've realized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's really funny because um, when the idea of moving to a rural state um, first came up, I thought, oh, no way. Uh, even though I had an interest in gardening, even though I had interest in some of these other activities, and I really do enjoy being outdoors, you know, I, I am very much a, a hiker and a camper and all of those things. Uh, I just didn't, it didn't jive with my sense of, of what I was supposed to be all about. You know, what really changed it for me was the first couple of days I was here. I arrived in Vermont in August and I went for a long hike in the woods in the quiet and uh, came across this mountain stream that was just running down the side of a hill. And something, I don't know what it was, I, I had this sort of moment of communion where I couldn't help myself. I took off my shoes. I took off my socks, I rolled my pants way up past my knees, and I went and I, I stood in that stream, you know, and just kind of let that water wash over me. And, and on the one hand, kind of say, you know, the work that you were just doing is now done. I've got new things for you to do, and this is where you're supposed to be. Yeah. And uh, so that for me remains kind of a powerful image of my sense of of what it's meant to move here. Uh, I feel very connected to the local community. I feel very connected to God being uh, so close to so much natural beauty and the ability to work the land myself a little bit and also be surrounded by people who are, you know, kind of tending the garden, uh, as we might say. The other thing that's been really inspiring to me is uh, 
I came here the year after the massive cleanup from Hurricane Irene. And what really amazed me was the level of neighbor-to-neighbor engagement. So there was a natural disaster, and before FEMA, before any kind of official rescuers were on their way, people were out on their ATVs roaming through the woods trying to get around the breaks in the road to the next house so that they could find out if their neighbors were okay. And there's something about that spirit that um, uh, even though... Vermont regularly competes uh, for the least church state in the union. <laughs> uh, there, there is a form of, of uh, religionless caregiving or religionless uh, compassion um, that I think really uh, actually jives really well <laughs> with my sense that, that God is at work. You know, whether someone uh, is singing hymns on Sunday morning or not, God is at work. And I've seen the, my friends, my neighbors, the people I've gotten to meet uh, since I've been here uh, being about that work, um, sometimes without even realizing it. And I, I suppose one of my hopes is that uh, I can perhaps be uh, a spiritual resource person to them who's something different than their typical understanding of what a churchy person is like. Someone who's more open to a wider variety of life experiences, someone who cares deeply about, uh, about the poor and those in need. Um, so just trying to uh, create a space for those conversations to happen. How's that connected with your um, Franciscan experience? How did you get kind of interested in that and how did, it, how did you start um, digging deeper? Yeah, well, let's see. It, as you as you probably remember, back in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, the economy very nearly collapsed. Yes, and for a lot of people, for a lot of people, kind of did. As part of that big sweep of things, um, we went through a lot of sort of personal financial distress in our family. Um, uh, we went through a real little period of panic when my wife lost her job, and uh, then when she did find work again, it was not full time but part time. Uh, and so some of life's uh, uh, sort of changes and chances gave us some some big stuff that we had to deal with. But as part of that, uh, I think that uh, both Sarah and I really started to do some major reevaluating of our values, of our principles, of what we expected, what we wanted, and kind of hand hand in hand with all of that. I had uh, the opportunity to be involved with some young activists at uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute uh, who were very involved around questions of environmental stewardship. Okay. And so kind of that, that whole thing set me on a quest. And originally I started looking, I'm, I'm the kind of person that likes to, I, I come across a problem or a predicament and I at least want to know about it. So I started researching. <laughs> yep. And the more I researched, the more depressed I became. Because every time I turned over a book, I'd say, oh, so the financial economy is a sham. Oh, <laughs> oh so, so our economy is, is pretty much predicated on environmental destruction. Oh, <laughs> oh wait, poverty is baked into the system. Oh. <laughs> and so at a certain point, uh, I, I desperately needed some, something to cling on to and something to hold on to um, that was hopeful in its nature, even if it meant embracing some of these radical changes around having less and, and, and functioning with less. And, you know, uh, just by God's grace, I happened to spot a, a little ad in a, in a, in a magazine um, 
that uh, uh, this little little tiny one of those little ones in the back of a magazine, and it said, "Oh, vocations, you know, or is God calling you?" So I don't know what made me originally reach out and and get in touch, but uh, I sent out an email to this non-specific email address, and eventually heard back from the person that was the formation director at the time, hmm. and uh, it just so happened that the Northeast Regional Fellowship was having a gathering in New London, Connecticut. Um, which is right down the highway from Worcester. So I right down got the street my, from me. Yeah, so I got in my car and drove down 395 and had no idea what I was walking into or what I was getting myself into, but just desperately needed to be connected to uh, something that was positive, something that was hopeful, and was looking for a community of people who maybe also understood what I was wrestling with. That's really what I found. The other things I found that, you know, kind of took some time to discover was I was amazed at the depth of faith and discipleship of a lot of the community or lay people and just the, the ways in which people um, were taking everything from teaching to nursing to any kind of occupation with this real verve and sense of vocation, which is something that, you know, I, I've been teaching about as a Lutheran pastor for a very long time, but have rarely seen people embrace fully. Uh -huh. uh, where Christians were sort of saying, you know, God made me to be a beekeeper, <laughs> you know, yeah. and really and really to kind of embrace that. And uh, also since then, I've had the opportunity to encounter this wide variety of people from around the world, um, some of whom are living, living uh, a very prayerful, but what we would sort of think of as largely secular life, you know, so they have families, they have children, they own a home. Uh, and yet, they, their, their daily practice of prayer, their commitment to worship, their commitment to um, serving and being with the people who reside at the margins is really quite compelling. Mm -hmm. And at the other end of the spectrum, there are individual brothers and sisters who, you know, live off donations. You know, people send in donations to help support their street ministry and they're riding the subway trains in Boston, um, teaching Christian peacemaking to young adults. And so, I mean, that's a pretty wide spectrum that I just described there, but that's that's what I've encountered in the community. So, so for those who aren't aren't familiar, what are some of um, kind of the Franciscans' key things? I mean, I know the prayer of St. Francis. I know when the people weren't listening, he turned around and preached to the birds instead. He was an aristocrat or some kind of rich person and decided to shed all of that to go serve, right? Isn't that kind of... Yeah, so yeah, Francis grew up in, in, in Assisi, which was kind of an up-and-coming uh, trade town. And his father was involved in the in the merchant and the fair movement. Um, and, you know, it's like there was a time when there was no such thing as a marketplace, but there would be these medieval fairs. And that was when everybody who had everything nice showed up at the same place at the same time. And that stuff was available for sale. Uh, so Francis had the opportunity to go into, you know, the business of marketing cloth and probably could have been fantastically successful. But interestingly enough, as a young man, he didn't want to be a merchant. He wanted to be a knight. And so he was always entertaining these ridiculous notions of, you know, putting on shining armor and going off to war and how glorious that would be. Mm -hmm. uh, and at a certain point, he actually had the opportunity to do that. Uh, he went and attacked, uh, along with his noble, a, a nearby city and was captured and was imprisoned. And Francis began his spiritual transformation as a POW who was incredibly sick. And during that time, he discovered this unshakable joy that he couldn't explain, that he was able to be joyful in the crappiest of circumstances, and, and ultimately came to understand that, that that joy came from Christ. And so I would say if you look at kind of hallmarks of Franciscan spirituality, there's joy, 
there's contemplation really being at the soul of everything that we do. In our community, people range from, we have active contemplatives, that is people whose primary calling is to prayer, uh, but that prayer bleeds over into the way they act in the world, all the way to contemplative activists. <laughs> uh, so people who are really at the front lines of, you know, chaining themselves to trees and, and uh, you know, causing all sorts of holy mischief and doing so out of a place of deep prayer and love for the world. And, and really that love for the world comes from uh, some core commitments around justice, around peace and around the integrity of creation. Francis really felt very strongly that um, that the entirety of creation was this uh, wonderful gift of God and that it revealed God's love. And if we needed the proof of that, well, then there was incarnation, right? Francis felt that Jesus would not have come into the world if the world was not the best vehicle for revealing what God was like. Uh, and since Jesus did come into the world, then the, that means that the world is one of the powerful places where God is revealed. This, of course, then means that everyone's connected from the rich to the poor, from those who are seemingly insignificant, like bugs and beetles and worms and stuff. I mean, there's stories about Francis picking up earthworms and moving them off the road so they don't get trampled, all the way to uh, you know being able to go and speak with the other in a manner that's rather respectful. A lot of people don't know that Francis of Assisi got drafted and went to one of the Crusades. And while he was there, he managed to sneak over enemy lines, got himself captured, and use that opportunity to have an audience with the Sultan of Egypt and entered into probably one of the earliest, uh, you know, meaningful interfaith dialogues in Christian Muslim relations. So that, that, that sort of longing to honor the other, even if the other seems to be on the opposite side of the fight, um, is really kind of a pretty deeply rooted principle uh, uh, within the charism. Well, that care of creation and the care for the other, it seems to fit very much with what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's even if, uh, if even if you both even if you just kind of bumped into both of those things, uh, <laughs> there's some there's some great synthesis there that's uh, it, it is doing a new thing, and that's really pretty powerful. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. And and I'd say that um, and this this kind of comes from Richard Rohr in his book Eager yeah. to Love. Uh, Richard's a um, Franciscan priest down in New Mexico, and he talks about how uh, Franciscan spirituality is a spirituality of the road, the sidewalk, the path, and the outdoors. Uh, the idea of the, the Christian just sort of moving through their environment. And so whether it's moving around the church property and taking care of the gardens or walking down the street to see who is out and who needs help and who could be connected with to, I find myself being drawn to uh, uh, one of the nice things about Rutland is that there's a lot of people trying very hard to address some of these uh, key challenges that we have, especially poverty and drug addiction. So there's often a lot of meetings, and meetings can be soul-killing uh, if they're done too often and for the wrong reasons. But I find myself really feeling energized that I can go to these meetings and I start listening to who who's involved in the city, what aspect of our, of our communal life are they trying to make better, and have found myself just continually linking up and making positive connections with a lot of other uh, people doing good in the community. From their side, what I've heard is a lot of reflection and excitement that there's someone from the church, you know, because as far as they're concerned, it's sort of all one thing. Yeah. Uh, they're very excited to see uh, the connection with the church uh, and someone being deeply involved in that. So what are some ways that maybe um, congregations or organizations can start to 
uh, utilize the things that they're perhaps doing well and link them to um, some of the needs in their own community. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would really start um, in much the same way in terms of taking a careful look at what are the what are the either self-sustaining or very active and even if it's just a, even if it's just one or two small things that really seem to continue to have life um, if they've been done for a long time, uh, if they've really been uh, connections that have been very meaningful over a course of several uh, instances or generations of the church, to look at those things and look for, are there any common threads? Are there connections that can be made between the different activities? And then if, if there is something there, to then begin to explore, well, you know, well, how, how drawn to or how called do we feel to, to go further in that? You know, it could very well be that the two key things that a congregation finds themselves doing, or an organization for that matter, are something that someone else in the community could do better, or that they'd be better off partnering with their strongest neighbor. Yeah. Um, and that's okay if they discover that. That just means that you might not be able to use that initial material of what's already linked up. You then would have to move on to really starting to ask the question, okay, prayerfully, where are we meant to be in this community? And who are we meant to be in this community? Because I, I don't believe that there's any congregation, no matter how large or how small, uh, that has no function or no purpose in the community in which they've been planted. God has some purpose for them. Yep. And it's going to take sometimes asking the tough questions to kind of figure that out. And, and I think not only asking the questions, but trying some things and, and failing at them and then trying something else and to seize the successes and really just build off of those. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, experimentation is huge. And one of the things that I think is very important as a partner with experimentation is what I like to call the ministry of consolation. So from time to time, we like to do a beer and hymns at a local pub here in Rutland. And that's purely a fellowship event. It's purely silly. It's purely fun. It's just really for enjoyment. But what it means is that that's one of those things that we do where if we experiment with something and we like it and we want to keep going, we do that. If we experiment with something and it turns out to be the worst idea in the 2,000-year history of the church, uh, I promise people three things. Number one, we won't do it again. Number two, we'll write it down so that we remembered that we decided not to do it again. And number three, we'll laugh about it when we get to beer and hymns. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that ability to laugh at yourself, to, you know, in fellowship, in friendship, be able to say, you know, that that idea, that wasn't a good idea, but that's OK. You know, because at the end of the day, the church does not rise or fall on the cleverness of any one of these projects, uh, but rather rises and falls on the movement of the Holy Spirit. And so that means that, uh, you know, in a certain sense, we can take it easy, uh, maybe not so much easy in terms of sitting still, but take it easy in terms of not beating ourselves up so much when uh, our ideas don't uh, turn out to be the exact miracle that we thought they might be. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good reminder for all of us. I think we often try to, uh, we outthink ourselves sometimes, I think. Well, sometimes on our way to designing a silver bullet, you know, we come up with, you know, a slingshot that shoots marbles. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, and, right. and then we're like, well, this is just a slingshot that shoots marbles. This is pointless. And so we throw the whole thing in the trash and uh, we let the perfect be the enemy of, of that which we can do. Yep. Well, John, what are some ways people can connect with you if they have uh, further questions or want to talk more? 
Sure. Um, probably the some of the best ways you can find me on Facebook. Uh, John Michael Longworth is how I'm listed there. Also, if you uh, Google Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Rutland, uh, there's some pretty easy contact things there. If people are curious to know more about the Order of Ecumenical Franciscans that I'm connected to, they can. Uh, the best thing they can do is look that up either on Facebook. Uh, where it's listed just like that, Order of Ecumenical Franciscans, uh, or they can go to www.oeffranciscans.org, and there's some basic information about the community, and uh, there's some contact links there as well to get in touch with people in the formation office. Cool. Just one more thing on that. Uh, you, you want to just share, like, what's your um, responsibility to that group? How, do, how does your interface relationally happen there? Sure, sure. Um, so uh, we have uh, forms of personal accountability. And so as someone who's life professed, I have, uh, I have a spiritual director outside the community that I work with every month, uh, which has been a benefit not just to that process, but to my whole, to all my ministry. And then I'm connected inside the community to a reporting partner where we check in and we talk about how our prayer lives are going and we talk about how our ministries and our activities are going and just really get a lot of support and encouragement that way. And then uh, I try to make it to as many of the regional fellowship activities as I can. Uh, and then once per year, we have an annual chapter and convocation. Uh, and it's kind of like a, a mashup of uh, an annual assembly, like business meeting type meeting, mm -hmm. and something that's a little bit more like what we do in the Lutheran Church with our bishop's convocation, where we get together to hear a guest speaker. So we sort of mash those two events into one event. So a portion okay. of the event is continuing ed and a portion of the event is business meeting. Uh, and that's another time to, to connect with people. That, I just kind of make it a habit to connect uh, whenever and wherever I can. Uh, so I'm a notorious couch surfer, uh, but it's kind of neat because I've actually gotten to witness in my own life when Jesus talks about how in the church we will gain mothers and brothers and sisters and, and households. I've, I've lived it. I've seen it. I've been able to go to uh, programs and events and stay like in New York City free of charge uh, and by staying with, with someone from the community. Uh, and so in my own life, that's very exciting because that's been a form of uh, social capital uh, that goes way beyond uh, being able to, say, for example, pay for uh, a hotel everywhere I go. Yeah, sure. Nice. Well, thank you, John, again, for joining us on here and, and telling us a little bit more about what you are doing there at Good Shepherd in Vermont and uh, about the, the Franciscan group that you are a part of. So thank you for that. And for all of you out there listening to this podcast, we thank you for joining us for another episode. And if you want to find out a little bit more about the Two Bald Pastors and what we are up to, you can go to our website, twobaldpastors.com or find us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash twobaldpastors. Again, thank you for joining us, and we hope you have uh, a, a great week. And remember, we are the Two Bald Pastors, uh, connecting you with your faith, with your life. Thank you, and have a great day. Be blessed. Bye. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. Oh, you're good now. Yep, now I can hear you. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> hey, good job, whatever you just did. I have no idea. <laughs>